Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Genius was a term that was much thrown around in the 19th century. It didn't go away, and we still use it today in the 21st century, and there were a lot of uses of it in the 20th century as well. And when we ask ourselves, well, what is genius? We usually associate it with people who are unusually productive and their productions are of high value, can't be predicted ahead of time. We extend it not just to, say, artistic production, but to organization of political communities, or especially these days, we talk about thought leaders with their brilliant books and TED Talks, or we talk about you know what used to be called captains of industry, and now we call them innovators and tech moguls and things like that. And there's this whole conception that there are all these geniuses out there and they're somehow, you know, bigger brains or whatever we want to call them. They have an immense talent compared to the rest of us. And Mill has a somewhat different take on genius that says, okay, that's all maybe true, but that's just part of what makes genius valuable. And he tells us something that's a bit paradoxical, which is that for all of the hype and all of the textbook praise of people of genius, that in a lot of ways, we don't really like genius. <laughs> we see it as something that we're at best indifferent to and perhaps don't even want to have around. It's sort of like a not in my backyard sort of thing. We have this acronym NIMBY for people who are all for cool stuff. Just don't put it in my backyard, put it in somebody else's backyard. And so he tells us that I insist on the importance of genius and the necessity of allowing it to unfold itself freely, both in thought and in practice. Being well aware, no one will deny the position in theory, right? Everybody's for geniuses. If we do something that we want to say would be problematic, so what if this, this canceled out an Einstein? What if this stood in the way of innovators, right? Everybody's for that in theory, according to Mill. But it's a little bit different, as he says, when it comes to reality or practice. He says, knowing almost everyone in reality is totally indifferent to it. People think genius is a fine thing if it enables a man to write an exciting poem or paint a picture or, you know, we might say make an electric car or shoot a rocket somewhere or pick whatever you want, you know, organize a new political strategy. That's all great. But how do we really feel about it? He says, nearly all at heart think they can do very well without it. We don't need geniuses coming in here and upsetting the proverbial apple cart, making waves, as we say, rocking the boat. Think about all these cliches, right? These cliches are examples of something that might have been the product of genius at one time, but we all use them and we're really happy with that. We like things to be nice and even. When we want change, as Mill says in another place, we often don't want it because it's progress. We just want change for change's sake. And and so there's, there's a real risk of wanting genius and recognizing genius, but not for the right reasons. We're often indifferent to true genius. And what is, what is really genius 
about what is its foundation? Is it that they are these mysterious figures and then out of the black box that is this person, as we see in movies all the time, something happens and they produce this amazing thing? I'm reminded of detective geniusing. For example, in the show Death in Paradise, it uses the traditional trope, which we see so often, also used in medical shows, like for example, House, where you have the genius, the eccentric, unpredictable person. In the case of Death in Paradise, it's nearly always a white British person who comes in to the island of Saint-Marie and, you know, is the DI, the detective inspector. In-house, it's this diagnostician who's kind of a curmudgeon. But what happens? They are the ones who can take in all the information and then some sudden flight of inspiration comes and they realize the pattern that they've been missing. They bring everybody in so we can do some exposition and walk them through a kind of Sherlock Holmes style, right? And now, is that how genius actually works? No. I mean, it could work that way in some cases. More often, it's not quite so inaccessible. You know, a great example of this is look at how Rainer Maria Rilke, a poet who was also interested in the arts, was the secretary for Rodin, learned from him, wrote about him. You know, we could also talk about Lou Salome, right? And her book on Nietzsche. You know, Nietzsche is considered to be this great genius. Where do these wonderful thoughts come from, right? Well, Lou Salome tells us where some of these wonderful thoughts come from. Of course, she's kind of, you know, should be classified as a genius herself. So Mill goes on and he says, this is too natural to be wondered at that people don't really care much about genius. Why? Because it's originality that makes a genius a genius. And he says, originality is the one thing which unoriginal minds cannot feel the use of, right? Originality in thought and action. So not just originality in a narrow band, originality in the way a person lives their life and the way that they put you know, ideas and experiences together. So what is the value of genius? If we backtrack a little bit in this chapter, chapter three, he says that originality is a valuable element in human affairs. There's always need of persons not only to discover new truths and point out when what were once truths are true no longer, but to commence new practices. I'm going to pause on that, to commence new practices. Truth and originality don't play out only in the realm of the theory or the marketplace of ideas, but also in lifestyle, also in policies, also in organization. And he says, they set the example of more enlightened conduct and better taste and sense in human life. And then this allows people to model themselves. He goes on and he says that it's true this benefit is not capable of being rendered by everybody alike. There are few people who actually do this. He's not saying that every person who's deviating from customs, traditions, norms is thereby a genius. As a matter of fact, a lot of them are cranks and eccentrics. And some of them actually may be problematic in, in various ways. But he says the few persons in comparison with the whole of mankind whose experiments, if adopted by others, would be likely to be any improvement on established practice are the salt of the earth. Without them, human life would become a stagnant pool. They introduce good things which did not before exist. It is they who keep the life in those which already existed. And so this is part of what geniuses do. He also talks about them being able to open the eyes of the unoriginal so that they actually do have a chance to be original themselves. 
they can work as a kind of model or example or at least a catalyst to allow people to realize that more is possible. In the realm of music, for example, Eddie Van Halen's tapping techniques, which were not completely original to him. He learned that in part from other musicians, but those other musicians said, wow, he went so much further than this. And the brown sound that he generated with his custom-made apparatus for his amp, that went on to become something that you could find discussed in Guitar Magazine. And what was originally a million cents genius became something that could become a matter of technique and technology, which then made it possible for other people to do yet other things within that sonic realm. And we could go on and on and on about other examples. You know, Norman Mailer, who one critic said had the imperialistic pretension of like any, any form of literature he came across, he wanted to do it. A lot of his stuff are flops, quite frankly. He is not the master of all genres that he aimed to be, but he did generate some good stuff in the process, which then made it possible for other writers to come along and say, I'm going to do something like this, but different. So opening the eyes of the unoriginal so that they have a chance at it. There are so many people, especially those in rather deprived circumstances, for whom seeing somebody doing something cool became a gateway to their own experimentation. They open their minds. So geniuses do that for us. It's not just that they write a cool poem, it's that they make us see that poetry could be a cool thing to do in the 21st century. He goes on and he talks about not engaging in any sort of hero worship, which is a debased conception of genius. He says, I'm not countenancing hero worship, which applauds the strong man of genius for forcibly seizing on the government of the world and making it do his bidding in spite of himself. That's just kind of silliness, right? Dangerous silliness, of course, and degenerating and debilitating silliness for those who engage in it. But the genius, he says, can claim the freedom to point the way. The power of compelling others into it is inconsistent with the freedom and development of the rest, but also corrupting to the strong person themselves. But despite that, he says, the initiation of all wise or noble things comes and must come from individuals, generally at first from some one individual. The honor and glory of the average person is that they're capable of following the initiative and be led to them with his eyes open. So I may not be able to write like Rogers Lasney or Ursula K. Le Guin, but I can appreciate the genius of their works. Two authors, by the way, who are very open about promoting other authors to help them out. Laguine, up until you know her recent demise, was doing writing workshops for people in which she would try to help them out, help them on the way. So geniuses are not to be worshipped, but rather to be taken as, as I mentioned, catalysts or inspiration. Now, Milne does make a few interesting claims a little bit earlier on about when you can actually have geniuses. How can we have these people? He says that they need an atmosphere of freedom. So he says, persons of genius are and are always likely to be a small minority. In order to have them, it's necessary to preserve the soil in which they grow. Geniuses can only breathe freely in an atmosphere of freedom. 
persons of genus are XV termini more individual than any other people, less capable consequently of fitting themselves without hurtful compression into any of the small number of molds that society provides in order to save its members the trouble of forming their own character. This leads us to a dilemma. If they are in a rather traditional, even repressive society in which a lot of options are not available. If they're too timid, they will be compressed into these molds and their genius will not be allowed to develop. By contrast, if they are particularly vigorous and strong, they can end up becoming a target for society as being weird, eccentric, outside of the norms, and, and even being attacked by that very society. So Mill says that we need to have a society as much as we can that is open to the kind of experimentation that would be possible. And he says it's important to give the freest scope possible to uncustomary things in order that it may in time appear which of these are fit to be converted into custom. So geniuses are supposed to be accorded some special leeway, you might say, but it's not all that much greater than that accorded to other people if we're doing what Mill thinks we ought to do in terms of political organization, society, and public opinion. So he's arguing for the importance and value of genius and saying that we don't want to misunderstand it and see it just in this romantic idea of the black box who generates this amazing new thing and we don't know where it's coming from. Instead, we ought to look at it as genius comes from experimentation with life and from a robust marketplace of ideas and lifestyles. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.